Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a, uh, a church uh, program, and uh, when I was in the in the hall, I noticed uh, they had um, a, a display of different types of uh, free literature uh, that uh, could be taken uh, by people. And one of the uh, little brochures was called 15 Questions for Evolutionists. And so that immediately caught my attention. I thought, oh, this looks interesting. And it turned out it was a a little brochure put out by Creation Ministries International. Um, And, of course, you can see them. Go to their website, uh, www.creation.com. But I thought they raised, you know, some really interesting uh, points um, that really summarised... some serious issues for um, people who hold to the theory of evolution as explaining the origin of life. And so I thought I'm uh, just going to go through these. The um, uh, One of the first questions that they came up with was, uh, well, how did life originate? And uh, they quote um, uh, uh, Professor Paul Davies, an evolutionist, and who uh, has written, uh, Nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organise themselves into the first living cell. Um, They also uh, have a quote from uh, Andrew Knoll, who was a professor of biology at Harvard, and um, apparently he wrote, We don't really know how life originated on this planet. And, of course, that's fit what I read in the literature as well. There's, there's really no really plausible scientific explanation for the um, origin of life. The article goes on to uh, say a minimal cell needs several hundred proteins. And even if every atom in the universe were an experiment with all the correct amino acids present for every possible molecular vibration in the supposedly evolutionary age of the universe, not even one average size functional protein would form. So how did life with hundreds of proteins originate by just by chemistry without intelligent design? So it's, uh, you know, quite fascinating um, there. So, uh, and one of the things, of course, with as I talk about a lot of these proteins and a lot of these uh, molecules, they have to have a particular orientation. So chemical structures, often we write them as a formula, but the molecules themselves have physical structures. And I think I've mentioned uh, in previous programs, some can occur in right-handed forms and some in left-handed, like you can't put your right hand in the left-handed glove. It just won't fit, won't work. Uh, but yet, basically, they're the same shape, but one is the mirror image of the other. And uh, th- this is a major problem for, for evolution because we know when chemical reactions occur, we get a mixture of both the right and left-handed forms of these sort of molecules, whereas the uh, you require enzymatic and, and particular chemical, the synthesis to occur in a particular chemical environment that allows only the one um, particular uh, form to form because right and left-handed forms really uh, one form can often be quite destructive 
um, or and even toxic in, in living systems. And so it needs a pre-existing living type system or you know, a complex uh, arrangement of chemicals uh, to produce these molecules. So again, there's a major problems there. Another question they ask is how did the DNA, this is a question for evolutionists, how did the DNA code originate? And they point out that the code is a sophisticated language system with letters and words where the meaning of the words is unrelated to the chemical properties of the letters. Just as the information on this page that they've written uh, is not a product of the chemical properties of the ink or if you're watching on a computer screen, pixels on a screen. So what other coding system has existed without an intelligent designer? Um, How did the DNA coding system arise without it being created? And uh, if you want to read uh, more about um, that, um, just go to uh, creation.com forward slash code. It's... um, yeah, quite revealing there, the, the evidence that the DNA code must have been designed. The third point that they bring out is um, how could mutations create the huge volumes of information in the DNA of living things? And again, you know, I've talked about this previously on a number of occasions, but they write mutations are accidental copying mistakes. So the DNA letters are exchanged or deleted or added or whole genes are duplicated, uh, or you can get chromosome inversions, etc. And they ask, how could such errors create three billion letters of DNA information to change a microbe into a microbiologist? In other words, how could random mistakes produce a code with 300 billion letters in it, roundabout, that works, that create us? And um, they go on to say there is information for how to make proteins, but also for controlling their use, much like a cookbook contains the ingredients as well as the instructions on how and when to use them. And so saying all this information is in, in the code, and it truly is amazing. One, And um, they also uh, point out that you know, in the code, the code has to give both the ingredients and the instructions because one without the other is useless. Um, I go on to say that mutations are known for their destructive effects also, including over a thousand human diseases such as haemophilia. Rarely are they ever helpful, but even then they are going in the wrong direction usually. And so again, um, more information on this they have on their website, uh, creation.com forward slash train. Um, there's another uh, link, creation.com forward slash meta information. The fourth question they raise is, why is natural selection taught as if it explains the origin and diversity of life? And this is certainly a question that I've puzzled over. You know, they stress the importance of natural selection and everything. But natural selection doesn't, create new information. It doesn't create new life. It just eliminates codes. Natural selection reduces the diversity of genetic information available. Um, And it's crazy how this is um, being taught as if it's evidence for for evolution. Um, But this is the impression that I get. 
that's out there in our secular education system. And they point this out in this article. They say this is especially puzzling since creationist biologists also accept natural selection and did so before Darwin. By definition, it is a selective process, selecting from already existing information, so it is not a creative process. It might explain the survival of the fittest, why certain genes benefit creatures in certain environments, but not the arrival of the fittest. In other words, where the genes and the creatures came from in the first place. The death of individuals not adapted to environment and the survival of those that are suited does not explain the origin of the traits that make an organism adapted to the environment. You know, for example, how to mine a beacon, uh, back and forth variations in uh, finch beaks explain the origin of beaks or finches. And, you know, again, this is an important point that they bring out. Um, Again, if you want to read more on that on their website, it's creation.com forward slash defining hyphen terms. Another one that uh, they raise, another point, um, and I think these are really, really good points. How did new biochemical pathways originate? And again, you know, when I look at the complexity of biochemistry and the, the size of the textbooks on basic biochemistry, particularly, you know, related to human diseases or mammal biochemistry, um, they're huge. And, you know, all these chemical processes that perform amazing functions that are now label our body to live, to repair itself, to grow, uh, to be able to reproduce and so forth. Um, they're, they're amazingly complex and they involve multiple stage systems that all work together. And, you know, for a long time, uh, and, and all these systems are encoded for in the DNA. Um, and it's just amazed me that, you know, the students taught, we all evolved, this is the complex, you know, biochemistry, you're going to have to learn this now, you know. <laughs> As if random mutations could produce this amazing biochemistry. And it's all slightly different in, you know, all the different animals and plants and all this sort of thing. You know, it has the same pattern, but it's all slightly different. So enormous amount of you know, mutations would be required and to produce these, let alone they, they've got to be successful and we know they're random and so, you know, the possibility as it was mentioned, you know, quite early on um, in their first point, you know, the probability of getting one of these systems right is so enormous it's, it's just not going to happen, let alone the trillions, possibly even trillions of trillions of systems that there are. So how did they originate? And they point out new pathways and nanomachines require multiple protein enzyme components to work. How did accidental changes, mutations to existing DNA create even one of the components, let alone 10 or 20 or 30 at the same time to create a new useful functional biochemistry pathway? And nanomachines needed to make the goo-to-you evolution possible. For example, how did a 32-component rotary motor like ATP synthase, which produces the energy currency ATP um, for all of life, or Kinesin, a postman delivering parcels inside cells, originate? Um, 
and this is you know delivering pieces of code in the cells. Evolutionary biochemist uh, uh, Franklin Harold wrote, "We must concede that there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolution of any biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations." And uh, just Google um, creation.com forward slash motor for more info on that. Uh, another argument that um, uh, is raised uh, and they point out is living things look like they were designed. So how do evolutionists know that they were not designed? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. It's like Richard Dawkins wrote, uh, biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. Well, I mean, how does he know that they weren't that they only have appearance? You know, it's just a personal opinion. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA, wrote biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Okay, so they're really forcing the issue. They've got to force the issue. It's so obvious it was designed. They've got to keep. You know, so again, this is so artificial, isn't it? The problem for evolutionists is that living things show too much design. Who objects when an archaeologist says that a pottery points to human design? Yet if someone attributes the design of living systems to a designer, that is not acceptable. Why should science be restricted to naturalistic causes rather than logical causes? Yeah, it makes so much sense, doesn't it, that there's, you know, Living systems are so much evidence of a supreme intelligence, God. And then they ask, point number seven, how did multicellular life originate? How did cells adapt to individual survival, learn to cooperate and specialise, such as nerve and muscle and blood cells, including undergoing self-sacrificing programmed cell death, to create complex plants and animals? Um, that's a really good article. You can look it up on creation.com forward slash multicellularity. Another one, of course, is how did sexual reproduction originate? You know, asexual reproduction gives up twice as much reproductive success or fitness for the same resources as sexual reproduction. So how could the latter ever gain enough advantage to be selected? And how could mere physics and chemistry invent the complementary apparatuses needed at the same time um, for, um, you know, sexual reproduction? You know, non-intelligent processes cannot plan for future coordination of male and female organs. And um, again, you know, it's so obvious, it's sort of staring us in the face, really, that these systems had to have been designed. Um, And of course, you can read up more about that on creation.com forward slash evosex, E-V-O-S-E-X. Another one that uh, they point out, uh, the ninth one, was why are the expected countless millions of transitional fossils missing? And uh, they point out that Darwin noted the problem, and it still remains. The evolutionary family tree in textbooks is based on imagination, not fossil evidence. Famous Harvard paleontologist and evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould wrote, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as a trade secret of paleontology. 
And uh, other evolutionary uh, fossil experts also acknowledge the problem of the lack of transitional fossils. And um, again, just go to creation.com forward slash P-A-T-T-Q-U-O-T-E. Pat quote, P-A-T-T-Q-U-O-T-E. The uh, 10th point they raise is a question for evolutionists and a challenge. How do living fossils remain unchanged over supposedly hundreds of millions of years? You know, if evolution is supposed to have changed worms into people in the same time frame, uh, Professor Gould wrote, the maintenance of stability within species must be considered as a major evolutionary problem. And um, there's a good article in creation.com uh, forward slash living underscore fossils. Um, another one is uh, point they raise, point number 11 is how did blind chemistry create the mind, intelligence, meaning, altruism, and morality? Now, if everything evolved and evolved just involving, you know, pure atoms and molecules and chemistry and so forth, um, and we supposedly invented God as per evolutionary teaching, what purpose or meaning is there to human life? You know, um, should, and they raise the question, should students be learning that life is meaningless in science classes? I mean, uh, this is an interesting point. There's, again, another interesting article in creation.com forward slash Chesterton, C-H-E-S-T-E-R-T-O-N. You know, the, this is... Uh, a fascinating problem for evolutionary theory, the origin of the mind, the origin of thought, um, because when you think about it, our thoughts are non-material. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much evidence uh, for God connecting with our mind. I might come back with that um, uh, just in a, in a moment or two. Uh, number 12 was, why is evolutionary storytelling tolerated? Um, and they write in this pamphlet, evolutionists often use flexible storytelling to explain observations contrary to evolutionary theory. Um, for example, um, uh, a Dr. Philip Skill wrote, Darwinian explanations for such things are often too supple. Natural selection makes humans self-centred and aggressive except when it makes them altruistic and peaceable. Or natural selection produces virile men who eagerly spread their seed except when it prefers men who are faithful protectors and providers. They go on to write, When an explanation is so supple that it can explain any behaviour, it's difficult to test it experimentally, much less use it as a catalyst for a scientific discovery. And uh, so, again, yeah, a lot of the so-called evolutionary explanations really are just, you know, fabricated ideas. Like I was uh, just reading er earlier where, you know, the evolutionists claim, well, uh, biological systems only appear to be designed. Well, hang on, in science, how do we discover things? We make observations. Here we are, we're making the observation that, it looks designed, but uh-uh, we can't go there. We can't say it's designed. Why not? Because they, these people say, no, we don't want you to, because it all points to God. And this is the thing. The evidence powerfully points to God, powerfully points to a supreme creator. Uh, 
Another interesting one, point number 13 they raise is, where are the scientific breakthroughs due to evolution? Um, Dr. Mark Kirshner, the chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School, stated, in fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution, except evolutionary biology itself. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. In other words, the teaching of evolution hasn't underpinned these greatest discoveries. They've just been based on observation. Um, and they fit the creation scenario just as well. Uh, Dr. Philip Skell, the father of carbon chemistry, wrote, it is our knowledge of how these organisms actually operate, not speculations about how they may have arisen several millions, uh, millions of years ago, that is essential to doctors, veterinarians, farmers. Evolution, and, um, so, and, and that's an important fact. It's, we want to know how these things operate today, not how they came to be here. That's the important part of science. Evolutionary actually hinders medical discovery. Then why do schools and universities teach evolution so dogmatically, stealing time from experimental biology so that the, that so benefits humankind? And that's um, an interesting article there that uh, some folk might be uh, interested in looking up on uh, creation.com forward slash science hash relevance. So it's forward slash science hash relevance. Um, and another um, one is to um, creation.com forward slash EvoQuest, E-V-O-Q-U-E-S-T. A lot of supporting information there. The 14th one that they raise is why is evolution a theory about history taught as if it was the same as operational science? And again, they, um, you know, there's been so much opposition to, in Christian schools, for example, teaching creation in science classes. And yet, why is evolution allowed to be taught? I mean, you cannot do, they point out, you cannot do experiments or even observe what happened in the past. And uh, when asked if evolution had been observed, Richard Dawkins said, evolution has been absorbed, observed, it just hasn't been observed while it is happening. <laughs> Oh, dear me, yes. It's, um, um, you know, it's quite fascinating. We do observe changes, of course, evolutionary changes, but not the types that produce new types of organisms. That's the difference. And this is where it becomes very confusing, too, the terminology that is used. Um, you know, evolution is a general term. And sure, we see things changing. We see things change as a result of a loss of genetic code. Um, and mutations that damage uh, cells and, and produce you know, mutations that are creatures that are damaged and mostly less likely to survive. What we don't see is the types of evolution that produces a new successful body part. That's what we don't observe. And that's the crucial thing that underpins evolution, explaining the so-called origin of diversity of life on Earth. But their 15th point is, why is a fundamentally religious idea taught in science classes? And this really frustrates me, and it really frustrates me that education departments aren't recognising this, aren't doing anything about it. And it just shows me that, that science itself has become governed by politics, not by true, genuine scientific observation. 
Um, in this point, they write, Dr. Michael Roos, an evolution science philosopher, admitted, evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution today. So that's what he wrote. If you can't teach religion in science classes, why is evolution taught? And um, you could also see creation.com forward slash not science. You know, earlier on we talked about how uh, blind chemistry created the mind. And it was interesting, just recently I um, watched a, a program on um, the evacuation of all the troops at Dunkirk in the Second World War, Operation Dynamo. And it was interesting, as I was reading some of the literature on the internet and reports about that, it was fascinating that on May 20, 1940, uh, I think it was the, the day before the evacuation was to commence or about that, that time, the King of England went on air and asked people to pray to God for God's intervention to make the evacuation success and for them to repent, to repent and surrender to God. And soon after that, according to the reports, there was a huge storm over the um, over the coast of France there that grounded the uh, the German fighter planes and at the same time this weather system moved in that the English Channel became remarkably calm and that enabled the successful evaluation uh, evacuation of over 300,000 troops the other factor was that Hitler and a number of his generals made very bad decisions, very bad military decisions. They decided to delay the, the progression of their tanks, their armoured tanks. Um, they did a number of, made a number of really strategically wrong decisions. And so again, in my view, this is a clear evidence of what we call a miracle and an answer to prayer that it involved the mind, it involved the weather at that time, uh, and the cloud system, there was a, a cloud system that came out too that uh, again prevented the Air Force for several days seeing the uh, the troops on the ground because otherwise they were all sitting on the beaches. They were just sitting ducks to be just mowed down by the machine guns in the planes. But it didn't happen. And there are a number of examples of this in, in history. And, you know, it's... Um, I re my wife and I read a devotional book in the, in the morning. Uh, many of these stories in the devotional books are answers to prayer that Christians have experienced. And it's often through the mind, the mind being influenced, people's minds being influenced and God setting up a providential system. You know, God is real and that's how we came to be here. God is real. And we know we all die, but that's not God's plan. God's plan is for us to live eternally in a beautiful system. And he's going to remake that system. The earth one day is going to be destroyed and God's going to remake the system. Um, and God wants us to be here. And the Bible is an account of, of men being inspired uh, and God speaking to men and giving this message that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness from sin for all the evil that we've done in our lives through Jesus, and that enables us to inherit eternal life and after death uh, to be raised up by Jesus when uh, God comes again in judgment and puts an end to all the horrible things on earth. It's going to happen, 
the Bible predictions and prophecies, so many of them have come true and been fulfilled on time. So I really would encourage you to turn to your Bible and, and read it and come to know God the Creator. You've been listening to Faith and Science. Um, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just um, Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org. And click on the listen button. And remember to share these links uh, with your friends so that they too may inherit eternal life. Have a great day. I'm Dr. John Ashton. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.